Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast. Thanks for returning and, and coming back. I hope you've been enjoying the conversations we, as much as we are having with each of these professionals that we speak with. Today, I have with me the full gang. We have Katie Miller. Hey, Katie. Hey, Brian. We've got Kevin with us. How's it going, Brian? I didn't say your last name, Kevin. You want to tell us what it is? Kevin Maynard. That's right. You got it right. <laughs> and we have Josh. Josh Benson on the mic. <laughs> and Danielle. Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook. We are all here, which it doesn't always happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm always enjoying the full force of us. I'm just curious. When you guys decided to have a career in the performing arts, did anybody, maybe your parents or just a friend or somebody, did anybody question that or, or kind of try to steer you towards something else? My uncle tried to, to, he didn't try. He got me a job at a prison mental institution as a guard and I didn't show up for it um, because I was pursuing what I wanted to pursue. Josh, I never knew this about you. We never had this conversation all the times we've hung out. But my brothers-in-law got in the prison system and were trying to make me a CEO. And I'm like, what? Have you seen me? Do you know me? Yeah, so I went to a predominantly science college and I was at orientation and we all had different colors on our badges. And it was like, okay, so like pair up with like somebody else that has the same color on your badge. And it was like me and one other person that had an orange dot on their badge. And I just felt so kind of alone a little bit. And like other people walking by and being like, oh, an arts major, huh? <laughs> like kind of like judged a little bit, like yeah, feeling yeah. that pressure of like, that's a bad choice. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that is something that can be felt across a lot of these areas. Yeah, I actually, so a little, a little background. I have an undergrad in accounting and a master's in business administration with a focus in finance. And when I left college and decided to, to go run a theater, my brother told me, he's like, well, when you're ready to get a real job yep, and make yep. real money, you can become an accountant. Um, and I will say I'm really happy that I didn't go that route. So, uh, Well, my degree is actually political science communications and theater studies. Um, but I feel like my parents never really pushed back on my pursuit of theater or being an arts professional. I think it felt inevitable for them because I uh, started as a political science major. That was what I was really passionate about public policy. And then I just spent more and more time producing theater and directing theater and like working on my own theater projects during undergrad. So I don't really think it was a surprise that I ended up in arts administration. Well, I had a great conversation with Lisa B. Lewis from Omnium Circus, and she's also at Harmony Artists. Well, let's just hear what she told us about her decision about joining the circus. Hi, my name is Lisa Lewis, and I am a regional representative of Harmony Artists, and I am also the founder and executive director of Omnium Circus. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for being with us. I um, I just wondered, because I know you have a background as an artist yourself, but you're also an agent and wear the hat, I believe, of a producer or executive director. Can you maybe just give us a little bit of background about each one of those hats that you wear? It's a lot of hats. I'm like an octopus. I have lots of heads. I started off my career as, as a young person, as a performer. Did that for many years, loved it. And the more I got into the industry, the more I learned, the more I really valued all the different aspects of it. And over time, I've done almost, almost everything 
within the industry, um, at least stuck my toes in every single aspect of it. So how did you get into the arts? Did you have um, some kind of moment in your childhood? My mom was always a regional theater director, so I did plays when I was a kid. And so I always was attracted to the arts, but I didn't quite know why or how. When you said you did plays, do you mean as a performer or you helped out backstage? I did it as a performer when I was a little kid. I think I was a munchkin about 18 times <laughs> in seven <laughs> versions of The Wizard of Oz or something. <laughs> One of those just fun childhood things. So I was always attracted to the arts um, since childhood. When I went to college, I started off, it was a liberal arts university, and I started off studying general theater because I didn't know what else to do, but it didn't quite fit. So I studied backstage a little bit. Their graduate program was very well advanced and the undergraduates didn't do that much. So I actually went for an undergraduate degree in stage management. But about my junior year, one of my roommates said to me, hey, look, Ringling's coming through town. Why don't you go and audition for them just for fun? At least they'll teach you how to juggle. So my junior year, I auditioned for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College and was accepted. That changed the entire direction and the entire course of my life. I just felt very at home. I felt very comfortable. It just, this was the place I belonged. I came back, finished school, got my equity card as a stage manager, and then started touring as a performer and as a stage manager. And it wasn't one of those lives that was predetermined. It was sort of like taking advantage of every opportunity that came along and following the pathway that it led me. I just want to back up to something you said at the beginning of this is you didn't even know how to juggle, you mentioned. So what what were you hoping to get out of that? Just you were hoping to just expand your experiences or were you looking to get into the circus? Um, when I first started, I didn't actually have any preconceived notions. I had no idea. Once I started doing it, um, I just fell in love with it. And I said, this is it. Circus is my passion. I'm staying. Wow. So you actually became a clown at some point, correct? I a did. professional clown. I'm just curious what that's like. You go back and you tell your family, hey, I'm going to be a clown. My mother was like, okay. My my father said, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not happening. My daughter's not doing this. And my grandfather went back in the back of his room and pulled out a big clown hat and a big bow tie and came out into the living room and said, we're going to clown college. Oh, wow. Does he have a background in that? No, he'd, oh, he was a shriner. He's okay, passed now. Okay. He was a Shriner and he had always loved the circus. That's fantastic. And this was Ringling Brothers and Barnum ba and Bailey Circus, yeah. correct? Yeah. So I mean, yes. it's not like you were just running off with some fly-by-night carnival that was in town. <laughs> no, it wasn't a mud show. It was really Ringling. Yeah. This was back in the mid 80s. So that was actually my first circus experience. We went on a school trip uh, into New York City. I think it was at Ma Madison Square Garden, I believe. Yeah. Um, and that was just such a powerful experience. I don't remember any of the acts because I was so young, but I do remember the feeling I had when I left there and the, just the excitement and the energy and how there was just so many things going on. Um, and, and that was just a, a great experience in my early childhood. That's one good thing about, about family entertainment. It really brings families together. And that's, I'm glad you had that experience with the circus and I hope many others do as well. It's a joy to be able to create that for other people. So what were the, the skills like that you had to learn that you didn't come into the circus with to e even be able to do that? And how long did it take you to learn all of that? Um, I always say two weeks to learn and 10 years to master. So in the first 10 weeks, I learned juggling 
um, a little bit of aerial, still walking, really basic stuff. And then you spend your lifetime perfecting and practicing because you figure in the circus, most of the performers are multi-generational performers. So to come into it as a newbie, there's a lot you have to learn. At what point did you get into um, doing other parts of the business? I was performing for many, many years, solely performing. And then at some point in time, I mean, like I said, my background was also stage management. So I have a sort of administration head as well as a performer's head. And then around 2012, 2013, something like that, I was asked to become a coordinator of a program for the Big Apple Circus called Circus of the Senses, which I'd been volunteering for and performing at for many years anyway. It was like a day job, like two days a week, in addition to working all the school shows and the fairs and everything else I'd been doing. And it just kind of hit a chord with me that I really enjoyed that aspect of the work. I loved reaching the communities. That particular program that I was coordinating is that was their access program. It was the one day a week that they put out audio description and sign language to try to include um, additional audiences that weren't able to see the regular production because they didn't have the proper access. Can we dive a little bit deeper into, into that work in, in terms of the actual things that you were doing, some of the, the duties and tasks and how you approach them? Sure. Um, so at that time, when I first started, my job was simply to coordinate access. The more I got into it, the more I realized that what was the standard access was not actually efficient. And they were clumping everyone who had any access need into one 10 a.m. performance. So we weren't actually serving the population we needed to serve. And because I had also been teaching kids on the autism spectrum circus skills um, with a, another residency program for the previous two years, and I was trained in that. I split out the program so that we could have one day of performances for people who needed extra sensory input and one day of performances for people who needed less sensory input. Like if you're low vision, you need brighter lights because that helps you to distinguish. If you are deaf or hard of hearing, you need more sound. I mean, deaf, you wouldn't require interpretation, of course. And then if you're on the autism spectrum or with neurodiversities, you might need less sensory input. So those two conflict with each other. You can't do that in the same production, not efficiently anyway. So I started to dive a lot more deeply into that and really found an industry and a market that was lacking. So so we'll get into what you're doing with Omnium because I've learned a lot about that, where that's a major part of, of what you do is is looking and focusing on access and equity. But I just want to keep back with the Big Apple Circus and the Ringling mm -hmm. Days, just trying to figure out what what a day in a life is like. A day in a life is, first of all, I want to say, if you are inclined to do this, please do, because it's really a very wonderful, wonderful adventure. No day is the same. Each day you come in hopefully with an open heart. I mean, everybody's tired some days. Never mind that. That's life. <laughs> Can't be helped. But each day you're coming in and looking at an overall project. We're going to create this show, this production. Under that, there are so many things that need to get done. And by the time you break it down into small doable tasks, they're doable, they're interesting. And as we piece them all together, the overall collaboration and creation is just a it's a wonderful experience when it goes well. As long as you keep drama and egos away 
and really focus on the joy of the audience's faces and the joy of creating a work that's going to inspire or move or affect in some way, depending on the artistry, but affect your audience in some way, creating a communication and bringing us together as a global community through the arts. That's what the arts does. That's wonderful. Now, how do you, you said you went into the communities and you'd work with them. How would you get, communicate with them that you're having these opportunities for access for, for all members of the community? And how would you get them engaged to come and and participate. You have to do it with an open heart. So to go into the community, you talk to people, you meet people, you find out what are your needs. I went to every service organization. What do you need? What can we do to support you in this joyful activity? How can we help you? How can we engage you guys and your people? And what do we need to make this a comfortable shared experience for you? And you just talk to people. So that's how, that's what you did. But I want to go even deeper into the weeds and know how you did it. So if you go into a community you've never been to before, how do you discover what community organizations are even there? How do you, you know, get your foot in the door? That sort that's of a great question. Okay. So our model with Omni and the model I've built to engage into a new community, the first thing we do is start with an internet search, reaching out to our basic, basic community. Now for us, it's going to be the special needs community. So we go out and we reach into, we research every single organization and program that's providing any service for anyone we're trying to reach. If it's the National Association of Down Syndrome, Best Buddies, the National Autism Society, there's National Federation for the Blind, any organization that is already serving the population that we want to share our product with. In our case, our circus, but any product we want to share, any theatrical um, artistic product. So we first go there because that's community organizations that are already in the community. We reach out on social media, any Facebook groups, any Anyone who is already engaged and serving within the community we want to reach. We've translated all our stuff into Spanish because the Hispanic community is a huge and underserved population. Because of the language barrier, it's the same with the deaf community. Because of the language barrier, the arts tend to be separated. So you need to bridge that gap. So you know you need to bridge that gap. So make a point of making sure there's someone who is quite fluent in Spanish within your team and make that happen so that you can reach out. I want to advance a little bit into the career that you have now with Harmony Artists as an agent. Um, how did that come about and how you've taken the skills you've learned from working in circus to what you're doing now with Harmony? Actually, it was a quite wonderful transition. As I mentioned, they they represented me as a performer. They represented my husband and his performing. And it's really very much the same thing as I performed in performing arts centers and theaters. And you, you talk to people, you work with people, you listen, what are their needs? It's really about listening. It's about hearing what a presenter needs about knowing your market, about knowing when I work with Harmony, knowing the artists that we represent, you know, their work, you know, what audiences that performance will most effectively reach. Now, I know artists and agents have to deal with a lot of rejection. Um, how do you respond to that and how do you deal with it? Or how would you re recommend to somebody who's going to be going into the field that that has to prepare for that? I mean, you get a lot more no's than you get yeses, but that's just part of the job. So you really can't take it personally. You have to know as an artist, 
you have to feel comfortable in your product. So as an artist, you can't be looking to presenters to provide you with enough self-esteem to move forward. That's a very challenging thing for artists, but it's not the presenter's job to make you feel good about yourself. And you can't be expecting them to fill that role because they have other roles to fill. So you have to know that your product is the product that you want to share with the world. Not every audience is going to be right for that product. You have to understand that everybody's going for the same goal. And if someone says no, I can't use this show now. Okay. Maybe the budget was too high. Maybe the numbers didn't work. Maybe their audience isn't attuned to that particular style of work. Maybe they want to grow their audience in a different direction and we have to support their outreach. I'm working with a presenter now who's exactly in that situation, who's wants to reach a different an audience that he's not previously reached. And we're working together to create programming that will both hold his current audience and attract an additional audience. And so you really can't take the rejection personally. There's so many factors. You just got to keep trying. Now, as an agent in the role of an agent, are you shielding the artists from a lot of that re rejection anyway, though, because you're the one that's reaching out and you're probably just sending offers to them, correct? You're yeah, not... I only send offers to them. I don't, I don't. Their, their job is to be an artist. They really don't need to be worried about how many times I'm pitching their show and how many, I mean, I'm out there trying. They just have to know that I'm out there and I'm pitching and you just have to take my word for it because they don't want to hear all the details of this. They've got other things to do. Sounds like a lot of the outreach you were doing to when you're going into the new communities with the circus is similar to what you were just talking about with helping presenters identify new audiences and expanding their audiences and so forth. Um, you probably are able to help them identify the organizations they may not even be aware of in their own communities, I'm guessing. I'm hopeful. That's really what I want to do. That's really my goal is to uplift the entire community. I know the pandemic's affected everybody and really hit the performing arts uh, really hard. But I know in coming back, a lot of things that, that started outdoors seem to take off faster than in indoors because a lot of us couldn't have indoor gatherings because of state rules and things at the time. And I'm just curious, did circus kind of rebound a little faster because they could do things outside or not so much? I feel like it did. I feel like the shows that were traveling intended shows started immediately selling out very quickly long before performing arts centers were able to get up and running. This might be a silly question, but I know I see a lot of rosters that mention Cirque, like they use the term Cirque instead of saying circus. Is there a difference between Cirque and circus or is it just a marketing thing? It's mostly a marketing thing. The connotation it has is a higher artistic quote unquote value and a lack of um, four-legged performing partners. In terms of circus, it the connotation is that it's more mass appeal. Cirque ticket prices are at the higher end of the range. And so when they use the word, they're trying to, it's a marketing thing to try to elevate themselves up. I don't know what the copyright rules on there. I'm sure there are plenty. And I'm sure there's lots of lawyers who worry about that besides me. So when it boils down to what the, the performers are doing and the quality of the artists and everything, to me, I've seen good and bad in both. It's marketing. There's the performers are brilliantly, wonderfully talented performers. And you'll find that if you look carefully, you'll find the same performer performing across everyone because they're going to go where the job is. Circus itself has mass appeal. The point of it is that it's for a generalized audience. 
The advantage of the art form is because it is a nonverbal art form. You're able to bring in different communities because you're not relying on a particular intellect or a particular language communication as you would be with a straight show, for example. And that's its job. It's mass entertainment. It's intended to do that. Can you give us some background about your new circus, Omnium Circus. Um, Just tell us how that came about and tell us what it is. So Omnium Circus came about given all of my previous experiences. And when the pandemic came, um, Big Apple Circus closed down and they've since been resold. And so I'm sitting in the pandemic going, okay, what am I going to do now? And two wonderful things happened. One, I got a call from Jerry and Adrian saying, come on board, which was fantastic from Harmony Artists. I was represented by Harmony Artists for many years as a performer. And then the time came to say, hey, look, I'd like to do, I'd like to become more involved. I'd like to do more. So they said, great, come on in. Let's train you to be an agent. (laughs) The first thing Jerry said to me was, this is all about relationships. And that's pretty much true for everything. So here we are. And two, I called put together everything I had been doing and said, what if we create a circus that has all of the access elements of the circus of the senses that we had been working for? And in addition to that, has representation within the ring. So not only do audiences have an access point to enjoy the show, but they can see themselves represented. And that's that's vital because you can't aspire to that which you have no knowledge of. If you don't even have a concept that it could be possible for you to explore this wonderful career, how could you possibly be inspired to do it? Because you've never been exposed to it. So representation is absolutely vital. So we created a virtual show because it was a pandemic. So we created a movie version virtual show, which was intended to be used as a showcase to offer up to producers and presenters and say, hey, is this an idea that's going to work? can we like make this happen? Lo and behold, people were very interested and people liked it very much. And That show has now been reframed and cut and edited to a 60-minute version, and we use it for a teaching program. That's fantastic. Did you reach out to the performers you knew from all the years of working in circus, or did a lot of people approach you when, when like, the Big Apple closed down and said, what are we going to do now? I mean, how did you put the circus together as far as the, the artists under the tent? I reached out to artists because knowing that I wanted a completely inclusive circus And the previous circus that I had been working with, and most circuses are fairly homogenous. They may have a token of representation of a different group, but as circus comes from a family tradition, you know, there's a, there's a logical reason for it. So what I wanted to do as a new company is kind of break that mold. So I reached out to people from within different communities and I made sure that I'm had representation from many, many different demographics, including those with disabilities. So what what do you think people will be surprised by when they get to your circus that they're like, wow, I didn't realize this was going to be here? I think they're going to be amazed with how good it is because people come thinking, okay, we're going to have access. Some people are disabled. Some people are this, some people are that. And I don't think they realize how much inherent talent is in these communities and and all the communities and how much beauty gets created when we all work together. Are you also doing outreach uh, um, as you go into towns in addition to the performances? A hundred percent, yes. So describe some of this outreach, like what what types of activities are you doing? So before we go into any community, um, we do exactly, as I said before, we look up all of the organizations, we start sending emails to them and saying, hey, we're coming. We want to make sure that you guys are included. Come and join us 
what here's the access we have, what else might you need? So we always reach out well in advance, well, as much in advance as the contract allows. There's practicalities here. It doesn't always work out quite the way you want. Sometimes it's like, oh my God, we're going to be there in two months. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, but we always reach out um, to all of these organizations because honestly, most performing arts centers at this juncture are missing out on a good 50% of their market. Because one in, one in four people in this country have a disability. So that's 25% of the population that is automatically excluded if you don't provide access or if you don't reach out to them. Each of those 25% have a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin. So now you've lost 50% of your audience. I want to put your uh, agent hat back on a minute and talk a little bit more a little bit more about Harmony Artists. Can you just tell us about the roster or the type of artists that um, that you have, the range of artists? Yeah, Harmony Artists is a phenomenal organization. Um, Jerry and Adrian have started it, Jerry Ross, Adrian Crane Ross. And the artists that we represent are a wonderful combination. It's a full range of just really, really top quality talent from acapella performers for Forever Motown, from Outrageous, which is this really avant-garde, beautiful um, musical group that does live art on stage and reaches all kinds of different communities. We have a hypnotist, Char, we represent Charo, who's just still as marvelous as ever. I love her. There's just a huge range of artists and musicians and performers. Have you noticed that there's still lingering effects of the pandemic, people that need to reschedule, or are you starting to see new trends develop and, and certain types of acts doing maybe better right now selling than others? Is Are there anything... Is there anything we can glean? I think we're finally, by the end of the 22-23 season, I think most of the artists that needed to be rebooked have been. I think, at least that's my impression in talking to presenters, that most people have kind of gotten through the rebooks. And now everybody's on kind of the same struggle bus in terms of finances. So artists need to raise their fees because gas price has gone up and travel prices has gone up. Presenters don't have a higher budget because they've had a year with no income or two years with no income. So there's a, there's a struggle bus going on where both needs are valid and people have to compromise. The artists can't necessarily raise their fees as much as they need to because the presenters genuinely don't have it in their budget yet. So they're being a little bit more conservative. They're not necessarily willing to take a risk. Oh, here's an artist that I might really like to present, but I'm not 100% sure that my audience is going to like it or not. So I think they're tending to make more conservative choices because they do need to make sure that that bottom line gets met this first year out. What do you find the most rewarding as an agent? Putting Again, you're keeping your agent hat on. What's the most rewarding part of your job right now? There's a Jewish word called a shidduch, a match. I really enjoy making that match. I just, I love it when I, when an artist and a presenter come together and the match just happens and I know that the audiences are going to really enjoy it and everybody's, as Jerry says, closing the deal. But I really enjoy making that match where I know that after all these choices, you've got a product that you're really satisfied with, that your audiences are going to really enjoy. The artist is going to have a positive experience. Presenter is going to have a positive experience. I just, I really enjoy making that match. I want to uh, take you in this time machine that I invented real quick and <laughs> go back to um, Lisa, who was performing, a little child Lisa, who was performing um, and, and wasn't sure that that's what she wanted to do. What advice would you give her if you just had a couple minutes to speak with her? 
I would say, don't worry about what you can or can't do. Just follow your heart and do the best you can. That's wonderful. Is there any other wisdom that you've learned along the way, whether in the circus or as an agent or anywhere along your professional career that you'd like to pass on to somebody who maybe is thinking about joining the industry in some way, either as a presenter, an artist, an agent, um, you know, whatever it might be? The best advice that I can give is something that I've learned well into my adult years. And it's really to listen. In a theater and in the arts, we tend to get, because they're very creative personalities, um, people tend to get very passionate, which is a wonderful thing. And it it drives the art. And there is a place for that passion. It's not in the administration. That passion is vital and it belongs on stage. Leave it there. And everything else, listen, work together. If nobody's dead, dying, or going to be, we can figure this out. There are problems and solutions. Let's find the solutions. I ask this question as my last question every time, and it's it's a little similar to uh, two questions ago. But Lisa, what do you like most about working in the industry today? What I like most about the industry today is really the core of the people that are in it. Everyone is doing really their best and most wonderful work, and especially coming out of this pandemic. And I really enjoy getting to the heart of the creativity in every single aspect, whether you're a designer, whether you're an agent, whether you're a producer, everyone has a very creative and wonderful intent. And I very much enjoy collaborating with so many different brains and so much creativity. And I really love the fact that people are open to welcoming newcomers. It was such an old boy society for so many years. And I love the fact that our industry is shifting and our doors are opening and our hearts are opening. And there's so much more creative and vital input coming in. I think the world is going to be, is just so much better for it. Lisa, what a great way to end. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, Brian. I think one of the things that I appreciated was that you asked the question that I was thinking, and that's that conversation of like Cirque versus Circus. Um, and it seems, you know, while I was listening, I was like, I wonder if there's a difference. Is there a difference? And it seems sort of silly, but I'm I'm glad that you were willing I to put to yourself honest, out there. I have to be honest, that was a question that I had the first, when I got the interview scheduled with her, I've been curious about this forever, but I feel silly asking it because I feel like I'm the only one that doesn't know the difference. And I was assuming it was just, okay, well, Cirque is French and circus is, the, and it's the same word, you know, like theater with an RE or an ER, it's the same exact word. And I thought it was cool that it, especially the lack of four-legged performing yeah. artists. I thought that, I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. None of the Cirque shows I've seen have any animals. Well, and her comment about the performers being equally talented in both yes, circus yeah. and Cirque, but it being more of a, a marketing distinction and, uh, you know, kind of a designation for the type of show you're going to see kind of more of a general audience with circus. And that has that very long over hundred year tradition. Right. And then this kind of evolution into Cirque, which is a much more produced in a theater, like very fancy with musical, like that sort of like distinction that's happened, but the performers are equally talented and have come out of that history, that very long and storied tradition in history was super fascinating to me. How awesome was her grandfather and supportive coming out like that? 
I just thought that was amazing. And and we didn't really get into it, but I mean, it's legendary. The the clown college mm-hmm. is like that's mm. serious stuff, you know. And it's not easy to get into no, either. No, like, and the fact she had no background in it and, and got <laughs> into like. Holy cow. And that's a, the, a thing that they touched on that, that I loved was that circus has always been a, a family tradition that it's generation after generation. And that as an outsider, she felt like she was coming up from behind from the very beginning because everybody else has been raised in it through the generations. Yeah, I never even thought of that. That's true. I also love the outreach she does with extra sensory shows and reduced or less or I, no sensory. I don't, I don't know how to word that, but I never even thought about that before. That's something that seems so obvious and, and plain, but yeah, you need the two types for making sure you serve everybody. And that was pretty eye-opening for me. Yeah. And we're so used to talking about like lower sensory needs, but really those, um, those listening devices that we have and those, um, uh, you know, sign language interpreting, that's really upping the sensory input and some of those things are standard, but the way that she was talking about it, I think brings a light to things that we, a lot of us think that we're doing right. Of course. Yeah, we have all of this, but do we really have all of this to serve everyone? And the circus's background and being in just this appeal for everyone. I mean, really, she is talking about having entertainment for absolutely everyone. And I think that that's something that we all need to take a look at. It really struck me when I was listening to your interview, Brian, about when in her career she started doing that work. And it just made me really think hard about um, this idea of accessibility, relaxed, sensory friendly. That's a concept that seems pretty new in our industry. Like TDF started the sensory friendly with Broadway about 15 years ago now. But That's a conversation that has been happening in parts of our industry for much, much longer. And I just want to make sure we're recognizing that and giving credit where credit is due, that there have been practitioners and agents, artists, presenters that have been thinking about access issues for much, much longer. I just want to make sure that we're thinking about like the longevity of that and realizing like we have so much more to do. The importance of teaching younger people coming into our field about this from the get go and not letting them go 10 years without having any concept of serving the audience. And props to people like Lisa who have been doing this work and continuing on and getting it to a point and advocating to a point where we are talking about it more regularly, where we're sitting here and thinking about how do we make this accessible for all audiences in our community versus just, you know, the ones we're already serving. Talk about biases. I I admit I did not expect that kind of conversation talking about circus. Yeah. That surprised me. That, that was my big surprise. And I think we're also making a lot of assumptions that circus has been considered a performing art in the performing arts industry, because I think that has a lot to do with the Cirque versus Circus conversation of taking it from the outdoor tent into the performing arts center. And, you know, that, it, you know, is it is it a blind spot for, you know, for us on this side of... I think so. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I definitely. Yeah. I mean, because how many people are booking circus? Um, we'll say they, they won't book a circus, but they'll book a Cirque show. Right. And pro- yeah. And props where props are due. I mean, they, they were there before. Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of us are at least realizing yeah. it. And coming into communities and, and doing that. I mean, it was that largely could be, you know, one of the earliest forms of like touring theater. I mean, that's an interesting thing to think about. And, and not to overlook, too, how she joined Harmony Artists and what she said Jerry told her, you know, about the relationships and the long-term view of things. I mean, all of that was pretty cool, too, because that's something we hear when we speak with agents. 
on this podcast. Yeah. And I think for many, Harmony is, and Jerry specifically, is some of people's first introductions to like a mentor situation. So having that that type of person to be able to work with on a daily basis is, is really cool. And she gets, gains a really cool perspective of both sides of that industry. All right. I want to thank Lisa for taking the time to sit with me and talk. I really learned a lot, especially because of my blind spots with circus and, and it's totally changed my mind. So thank you, Lisa. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the No Business Like podcast. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hook. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. You can find and follow us everywhere at nobusinesslike.com, which has links to all of our socials. Stay in touch, my friends. And now let's go to the weather. <laughs> in our chopper, we have Danielle Van Hook. <laughs> How's it looking out there? Choppy. All right, for late. <laughs>